Hello. Today's episode is brought to you by Leatherman Data Services via the historypodcasters.com network. If, like me, sometimes you'd like to add a visual element to your historical narrative, but you lack the time or skill to make them yourself, then why not try and find an experienced cartographer who shares your passion for the past? Leatherman Data Services provide mapping and geographic data services for historians, archaeologists and others. They aim to provide high-quality products for the people who care about history just as much as we do. You can contact them at leathermandataservices at gmail.com or visit the website leathermandataservices.com. Welcome to the Legends of King Arthur and his Knights. Chapter 35. The Marked Man. Galahad, son of Lancelot and descendant of the Fisher Kings, was ready for his quest. He had the magical sword from the stone, and now he had the shield, which was meant only for him. The shield was a very fine specimen indeed. It was very simply decorated. The shield itself was a shimmering, brilliant white, and on it was drawn a red cross. No other markings were visible. The shield was perfectly made. Galahad placed the shield around his neck, mounted his horse, and beckoned the squire who had brought the shield to him to follow. The squire mounted his own horse and rode off behind Galahad, somewhat in awe of being in the presence of obvious greatness. Sir Uwain smiled as he watched them go. Then he rode off in the opposite direction. Galahad knew exactly where he was going. He was attempting a great quest, and he wanted to be prepared. He knew the story of the sword, but the shield was a mystery to him. If he was to carry it and use it well, he needed to know its story. He needed to know why it was so important. And he knew how to find out. He got the squire whose name was Melias, to take him to the White Knight who had fought King Bagdemagus. He wasn't too hard to find. Anyone would think that it was destined that he should be found. Galahad asked the White Knight for the story of the shield, and what a story it was. Joseph of Arimathea left the Holy Land many years after Jesus was crucified. He eventually arrived in the city of Saras and met with the king, Evelac. The king was at war with his neighbour, King Tholomere. The new religion of Christianity hadn't reached these parts of the world yet, but Joseph's son, Josephus, told Evelac that if he prayed to God and became a Christian, then he would defeat Tholomere. He handed Evelac a shield. The shield was white, and on it was painted a cross. Josephus told Evelac to unveil the shield and pray, just when it seemed defeat was inevitable. Evelac did just that. His army was on the verge of defeat when he brought the shield out. The tide turned, and Evelac's army was victorious. He returned to Saras in triumph. A service of baptism was held to give thanks. At the service, a man passed by, who had had his hand severed in the battle. Josephus beckoned the man over, and touched his stump with the cross on the shield. The hand grew back. Not only that, the cross disappeared from the shield and transferred itself to the healed man's arm, just like a holy tattoo. Everyone was hugely impressed. But that's not the end of the story of the shield. When Joseph and Josephus travelled here to Britain, Josephus was thrown into prison. King Evelac hurried over from Saras and freed Josephus and then never went home. He followed the great man around as he spread the new religion throughout Britain. Eventually, when Josephus was a very old man, he called Evelac to see him. He told the king of Saras that he was dying. He told Evelac to bring him the enchanted shield. The shield was brought in. Josephus was ill and bleeding, and with his remaining strength he drew a cross on the shield, 
just where the original one had been, in his own blood. He told Everlack the shield would one day be worn by the best and greatest of knights, and then he told the king where the shield must be left. It was to be left in the abbey, and there you, Galahad, the one who was destined to wear it, found it. That idiot Bagdemagus nearly ruined everything, but now you have the shield, just as was prophesied by Josephus himself. The knight finished his story, and Galahad thanked him and rode off. The squire followed him. A great and pure knight he may have been, but he couldn't help being highly delighted with some of the very cool gear he'd acquired to help him with the quest. He was shaken out of his reverie before he had time to become smug by Melius, who obviously had something important to say. Sir Galahad, greatest and truest of all knights, I have a request. Please knight me. I want to enter the orders of chivalry. Galahad, still very young himself, looked down at the boy and knew how he felt. He smiled and agreed that he would knight him. Melius asked him to return to the abbey and said he would return there later with some arms and a horse, ready to be knighted. He also told Galahad that there was an adventure at the abbey that Galahad must take on. Galahad realised the young man must have been put there to help him do the right things at the beginning of the quest and he nodded his agreement. Then he rode back to the abbey. When he got there, he immediately asked one of the monks, the oldest and wisest of the order, about the adventure. There was clearly some sort of destiny thing going on, as the monks seemed to express no surprise at all that Galahad had asked him about it. He led the young knight into the graveyard and pointed at one of the tombs. Listen, he said, and you will hear something terrifying. Out of that tomb sometimes comes a voice. It is hideous and blood-curdling. Any man who hears it is filled with terror. You must go over to the tomb and lift the stone. Galahad strode over to the tomb, nestling beneath a huge tree. As he drew near, he heard a sound which made his blood run cold. A piercing, rending shriek blared from the grave. Then the shriek slowly quietened and a voice was heard. Stand back, Galahad, servant of Jesus. Go away and leave me. Galahad, a little perturbed but unafraid, ignored the words and strode over to the tomb. He was about to lift the lid when he saw smoke and flame belch out. Following quickly behind was a foul, hideous, man-shaped object. Galahad knew it was a demon. The demon, though, seemed to realise the knight was something out of the ordinary. Instead of being engulfed in flame and death, Galahad was treated to more words. Ah, Galahad, most perfect of knights. I see that you are surrounded by angels and my power is nothing compared with yours. I leave this place and give it to you. And with that, it was gone. Galahad lifted the lid of the tomb and peered inside, probably expecting to see something even more horrible. What he saw, though, was the body of a knight, fully clothed and armed. He looked up at the monks. They didn't seem to know what to do, so Galahad ordered the body be taken away from holy ground and buried somewhere else. This was done, and Galahad consulted with the old monk who had given him the challenge. The old man told him he had done what was required. He also told him the tomb represented the hardship and sin of the world. He told Galahad that God had chosen him, the knight who was without sin, to ride through the land putting things right and creating meaning from chaos. The tomb had struck fear and terror into the hearts of many great men, but now, because of him, it was quiet. Together, Galahad and the old monk strode back to the abbey. There they met Melius, who had just arrived ready to be knighted. Melius informed him that he was actually the son of the King of Denmark. He was knighted there and then. He told Galahad he would now make a request of him, 
and given that he had just knighted him, Galahad could not refuse his first request. Galahad, knowing this was correct, agreed. Melius asked that he be allowed to accompany Galahad on his quest until a true adventure parted them. Sir Galahad agreed, and the two departed, ready to find out what that adventure might be. Their quest had truly started. The same could not be said for one of King Arthur's greatest knights. Sir Tristram of Lyons was preparing to depart when he received a message from Brittany. It seems the land of Brittany was in some peril, and the king required him to come and do something about it. Tristram heard from Sir Cahidius, the son of the king, that he was needed. This was the last thing that Tristram wanted to do, but he knew he had no choice. After all, he was still technically married to Isoude La Blanche Mains, Sir Cahidius's sister. Given the way he had parted from Sir Cahidius many, many years before, Tristram knew that his brother-in-law wouldn't be asking for help unless he really needed it. He resigned himself to doing his duty and began the long journey to Brittany. Tristram rode towards the coast, hoping to find a friendly sea captain who would ferry him over the channel to his destination. When he got there, he was able to arrange transport almost immediately. Satisfied, Tristram boarded the ship. He was somewhat nervous about meeting his estranged wife again, but he was in reasonable spirits. He didn't think it would take him too long to sort out the difficulties in Brittany, and soon he'd be back to join up with Sir Dinadan and go questing for the Grail. Tristram disembarked onto the shores of Brittany after a calm and relaxing crossing. The destination was only a short ride. He whistled to himself as he cantered along and grinned a wide grin when he realised he was whistling Dinadan's song about King Mark. His enjoyment of the moment was short-lived, however, as he was suddenly in great pain and being thrown from his horse. As he hit the ground, Tristram was surprised and somewhat unhappy to discover there was a large spear sticking out of his side. He tried to pull it out, but it was stuck fast. It quickly dawned on him that he was in very big trouble. He was badly wounded and unable to get up. Sir Tristram of Lyons realised he was in serious danger of dying there and then. King Mark's assassins galloped away, their job done. They knew what Tristram didn't. He was in even greater danger than he realised. The spear tip had been poisoned. Before long, the poison would be seeping through his body. If Tristram thought he was in pain now, it was nothing to what he would be feeling soon. Luck hadn't entirely deserted the great man, though. He had let Sir Cahidius know he was coming, and the knight from Brittany rode out to meet him. He discovered his brother-in-law lying on the ground with a spear sticking out of his side. Cahidius called for his men, and they carried the stricken hero back to his castle. Isoude La Blanche Mains looked down at her husband. He had been placed on a bed and the spear removed. The doctors said the spear wound would heal, but they had no idea whether the poison would be fatal. Isoude took it upon herself to nurse Tristram back to health, and she tended him lovingly. The next day, it became abundantly clear that all was not well. The poison seeped into Tristram's veins and spread throughout his body. He developed a terrible fever and the pain was intense. Before long, he could feel his limbs weakening. He became more and more frightened and more and more convinced he was going to die. All he could think about was La Belle Isoude. He couldn't bear the thought he was going to die there in Brittany without ever seeing the beautiful face of the woman he loved. He longed to see his dear love just one more time. Tristram waited till his wife had gone out and called for Sir Cahidius. The Breton may have been his wife's brother, but they had shared some adventures in the past and Tristram thought he could trust him. When Cahidius entered his room, 
Tristrand beckoned to him to come over to the bed. As Cahidius bent down and put his ear near Tristram's mouth, Sir Tristram of Lyons spoke in a whispery, faltering voice. "'Brother-in-law, please do me one service. I am in a foreign land without friends or family, and you are the only one I can trust. I am dying here in this bed, and I long to see my love. Grab the swiftest horse you own, and speed to Britain. Bring her here to see me so that I can say good-bye. Take a set of black sails and a set of white sails with you. If you have a suit with you when you return, then hoist the white sails.' If she has not travelled, then hoist the black. I will try to keep enough strength to go to the cliffs once per day and look out for you. He handed Cahidius a ring and told him to take it with him and give it to Isoud. Sir Cahidius should have had divided loyalties and should have thought about the task before agreeing to do it. He loved Tristram dearly, though, and he agreed to fetch Isoud. He told Tristram he would fetch her and that she could help tend him and nurse him back to health. He was not going to die. The Grail quest was underway, and Sir Tristram must be a part of it. Surely it was not to be his destiny to pass away there in Brittany. Cahidia strode away from the bed and prepared to do Tristram's bidding. As he left the room, Sir Cahidius completely failed to notice a figure slip into an alcove. Somebody had been listening through the door as Tristram gave his message. Someone had heard every word. Isoud La Blanchemains watched her brother leave with an iron heart. She had known that Tristram had been with the other Isoud all these years, but at least he'd never tried to rub her nose in it. Now he was going to bring the dreadful woman there to Brittany, to her own home. Isoud, coldly and calculatingly, vowed revenge. Cahidius made good time to the coast and found a ship straight away. Not long later, he arrived in Britain. Isoud La Blanche Mains walked back into Tristram's room. Nothing about her suggested anything was wrong. She kissed Tristram and told him to rest. She fed him and watered him and she washed him gently. All the time she was doing this, she continued silently to vow revenge. Cahidius made his way to La Belle Isoud in record time. When he got there, he wasted no more. He handed her the ring and spoke. As he opened his mouth, he looked at her. She recognised the ring immediately and she knew something must be wrong. The colour drained from her cheeks. Lady, said Cahidius, Sir Tristram of Lyons is badly wounded. He has been struck with a poisoned spear and lies close to death. He asks that you come with me and travel to Brittany so he can see you. Isoud choked back her tears. Friend, I will follow you. Get your ship ready to leave tomorrow at dawn. The next day, as the sun peaked up above the horizon, Cahidius and La Belle Isoud departed. The journey was rough, but a few days later the sailors saw the coast of Brittany approaching. Sir Cahidius raised the white sail as high as he could and prayed that they could be seen from the shore. He also prayed that Tristram was alive to see them. Tristram was alive to see them. Unfortunately, his health had deteriorated and he no longer had the strength to make it to the shore, even with help. Isoud La Blanche Mains had nursed him tenderly, but his condition just got steadily worse. Tristram fretted and wondered how he was going to find out whether Isoud was on her way. If he was dying, then he wanted to hold on long enough to see her when she arrived. On the day that Cahidius spotted dry land, Isoud La Blanche Mains came into Tristram's room. My lord, she said softly, I saw my brother's ship on the horizon this morning. He will arrive home soon. I've no idea where he went, he was very secretive. It'll be good to see him, won't it? 
Tristram jumped. His failing heart soared and then froze with nervousness. With a trembling voice, he asked the question he had to ask. What colour were the sails? Oh, I'm not sure I noticed, replied Isoud a little too easily. Why do you ask? Isoud looked over at her husband, taking some pleasure in his discomfort as he tried to find an answer. He was weak and his mind was cloudy. He struggled for words. Isoud mopped his brow and looked into his eyes. Then she put on her best fake concerned smile and delivered the crippling verbal blow. Now I think about it, I'm pretty sure the sails were black. Anyway, rest now, he'll be here before too long. Tristram turned to the wall and groaned. I can't hold on to this life of mine any longer, he said softly. Isoud, my love, he moaned. Then he said it a little more quietly, and then again, quieter still. Isoud, my love, he said a fourth time, this time in little more than a whisper. And then he gave up. With the thought in his mind that La Belle Isoud had refused to see him in his hour of greatest need, Sir Tristram of Lyons died. A hero, one of the greatest of all knights, Tristram didn't die gloriously on the battlefield. He expired quietly and forlornly in a foreign land, thinking that he'd been abandoned by the only person that really mattered. Cahidius's ship landed a few hours later. As he and Isoud made their way through the land, it was obvious that something was badly wrong. The tolling of the bells told a doleful tale. People were mourning in the streets. Isoud asked an old man what was going on. Deep inside, she already knew the answer, but she had to be sure. My lady, today we have suffered a great sorrow. The noble Sir Tristram is dead. Isoud said nothing further. Cahidius said nothing to her. What could he possibly have said? They made their way to the palace. La Belle Isoud climbed the steps and was taken to Tristram's room. She opened the door and stepped in. There, lying on the bed, was her Tristram. He seemed to be asleep, but there was no breath. There could be no doubt. Sir Tristram of Lyons was dead. Kneeling by the bed, sobbing quietly, was Isoud la Blanche Mains. Anger and jealousy gone, she despaired at what she had done. She knew that Tristram would have died anyway, but she denied him his dying wish. When she saw la Belle Isoud, she stood up and stepped away. Silently, she walked out of the room and left the lovers alone. La Belle Isoud bent over and kissed Tristram softly on his still handsome face. Then she got onto the bed and lay down next to him. She spoke to him softly, remembering their life together and the love they shared. Then she turned to the wall and prayed for them both. Having done what she needed to do, she closed her eyes, wrapped her arms around her loved one and gave in to her grief. Just like Tristram, she died there on that bed. King Mark had finally got what he wanted. He was finally rid of his brilliant nephew. For a time he was pleased, but a man with that much treacherous blood on his hands can never rest easy. Before long, the old paranoia set in and he was as bitter and twisted as ever. As it happens, he was right to be paranoid, but we will hear about that later. The Grail quest would have to go on without Sir Tristram of Lyons. When Arthur heard what had happened to him, he was lost in melancholy. This, as we know, was exactly the kind of thing he expected to happen. Next time, the Grail quest continues. So we'll say a farewell to Sir Tristram, and I'll speak to you next time. <laughs>